Good evening, church. It is a pleasure and a joy to be speaking to you tonight from God's uh, own word. Uh, If you would, open your Bibles tonight to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. We'll be looking at primarily tonight with other supporting texts. That's uh, Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. I'm sure many of you are familiar with the text, but let's go ahead and read it. Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 4, I'm reading on the New American Standard Bible. I will read it, I'll pray, we'll talk about the context, and then get into the exposition, and then finally the application of the Word. The Word of God reads, God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. I know we just prayed, but I'd like to pray again and ask God to bless um, communication of his word tonight. Dear Heavenly Father, you have spoken. You have spoken through the prophets and you've spoken through your son. And you speak to us now through your written word. I ask you that you would speak to our hearts. I ask you that you would press upon us the importance of your son, Jesus Christ, the importance of your word in our daily lives, the power of your word. I ask that you would give us reverence for your text tonight. I ask that you give me clarity as I speak to my brothers and sisters. Give them ears to hear and clarity of mind as you, Lord God, move among your people every time your word is taught. Thank you so much for the word we've already heard in Sunday school and in Sunday morning service today. Thank you so much for the corporate worship. Thank you most of all for you, Lord God. I ask you, Lord God, that you would work by your spirit through your word, in the hearts of your people, for the glory of your holy name, and for our joy. It's in Jesus Christ's name I pray. Amen. As many of you know, the uh, author of the book of Hebrews is uh, uncertain. Uh, many people wonder if it was Paul or Barnabas or others. And I want to just kind of offer a little bit of context of the book itself, because we're starting at verse 1, chapter 1. And uh, as some of you may know also, in the Greek verses 1 through 4 that we have broken up in the English and the New American Standard is three different verses. Verses In the Greek, it's one long sentence. So we're really looking at just the opening remark, the opening sentence of the book tonight. So I want to kind of give some overview and some context of the book itself so we don't feel too lost. Um, and it's always also good to give context of the book. But the author is uncertain, but the audience is much more certain. The letter to the Hebrews was written to Hebrews, to Jewish recipients, as the title implies. Also, if you read through the rest of the content of the book of Hebrews, you will see that it points to those who have a Jewish background. The author is writing to those who are familiar with the Old Testament, the Levitical system, the sacrificial system. There are actually 29 direct Old Testament quotes, and somebody counted at least another 53 clear allusions to the Old Testament. So the Old Testament was known, uh, or at least the author assumed that his audience knew much about the Old Testament. So we assume that they were Jewish or Hebrew people. 
Now, what was the spiritual condition of this audience? Was he writing to the lost? Was he writing to those who were strong in the faith, those who were struggling in the faith? Well, he calls them in Hebrews 3.1, holy brethren. So we believe that they were believers, but as in every church, there were no doubt some who merely professed Christianity but weren't true believers. The author's warnings throughout the book imply he was concerned that some of the audience may run the risk of becoming apostate and slipping back into Judaism. If you read the entirety of the book of Hebrews, which we won't be doing tonight, um, you will find these warnings. Uh, some of them are parenthetical. Some of them are just kind of, you know, like one-sentence little ex- words of exhortation. But we see that the author was concerned about some of the audience. Now, what is the content of the book of Hebrews? What, what was it written to accomplish? The letter to the Hebrews is an apologetic letter. Now, I don't mean apologetic like I'm sorry for something, but apologetic in the sense that he's defending something. He's defending the faith. The author writes with the intention to exalt the superiority of Jesus Christ and therefore of Christianity over Judaism, specifically in regards to the priesthood and the Old Testament sacrificial system. Now, it's not saying that the priesthood and the Old Testament sacrificial system were wrong in their time, but now that Christ had come, now that he had brought the New Testament, the new covenant, a better covenant uh, through his own perfect sacrifice, he was superior to those, and there are those who are rejecting Jesus Christ and clinging back to the Judaism they had, and many times the uh, corrupted Pharisaical teachings of their day uh, that Christ announced during his ministry. So, the author is writing to defend the superiority of Christ over the Old Testament sacrificial and Levitical system, that Christ is the great priest, he is the great sacrifice, he is Lord of lords and King of kings. The theme is developed by proving in the early part of the book that Christ is superior to the Old Testament, uh, to the angels, and then to the Old Testament prophets such as Moses, uh, to the priests, to the sacrificial system, as I mentioned. But ultimately, the author is saying that Christ is the supreme and only Savior, and he will rule by his superior power. And the letter wraps up, as many letters do, with some application, additional exhortations, and final greetings. Now, as I've mentioned, there are several warnings given in the book of Hebrews and uh, many comparative analyses. However, this evening, I'd like to focus on the first sentence to the letter to the Hebrews. In our English translations, as I mentioned, verses 1 through 4 are broken into multiple sentences, as in the NASB, it's 3. However, in the Greek, the opening paragraph or remarks comprise just one beautiful sentence. The first sentence or the first four verses focus on the person of Jesus Christ, his divinity and his superiority, which we will examine tonight. And then secondarily, I would like to take some time to discuss the nature of God's spoken communication with man, which is referenced several times in the text. So if you will, I'm going to read it one more time. It's fairly short. Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, God, after he had spoken long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Now let's first look at the structure of this sentence, or these first four verses. In English, the first sentence tells us that God has spoken in different ways. 
He said that he spoke a long time ago to the fathers and the prophets, and these last days he's spoken to the Son. So God has spoken in different ways. It's kind of the theme of the first verse, um, or the first sentence in English. In English, the second sentence tells us something about the Son of God, what he's like and what he does. It says here, He is the radiance of his, the Father's glory, and the exact representation of his, or the Father's nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. So it tells us a little bit about Jesus, the Son, and tells us what he does. Finally, in English, the last sentence tells us more about what the Son does. It says, When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. So we are learning about what God has spoken, how he has spoken, who the Son is, and what the Son has done, or what he accomplished, or you know, what his rights and reign are like. The, uh, the older King James Version tries to leave it as one giant sentence in the main kind of initial thought, uh, subject and verb, and if we're breaking this down in English, is God has spoken. And then it develops all these other prepositional phrases and adjectival uh, clauses that describe not only God having spoke, but through his son, and then more things about the son. So that's kind of like as you look at it as an English reader, how it kind of flows, what it's telling you. And obviously there are many phrases here that give us additional information, but the main thought at the outset is just that God has spoken. God has spoken. He communicated. That in itself is a powerful and a wonderful thought. However, I do not believe that that is the main point of the sentence. The central focus of the sentence appears rather to be the Son of God. The description of God the Father speaking through the prophets and through the Son seemed to be a building argument for the exaltation and superiority of the Son of God. Now, if we had time tonight to do an entire overview of the book of Hebrews, I believe you would see how this opening sentence supports the exact same structure as the entire book does. The author of Hebrews is constantly arguing for the superiority of Christ, Christ above all. And this first sentence is saying, God spoke this way at this time, but now he has spoken in his son. And let me tell you about the son. So the, the, the real focus of this opening sentence or these first few verses are just that the Christ, the son of God, is superior in all of his ways, in all of his beauty. Think about it this way. The structure of the sentence has Christ as the pinnacle. The first half of the sentence builds up to his exaltation. The second half continues to explain his exaltation. I kind of think of it like a pyramid in my head. Christ is the pinnacle, and these arguments are just building up and supporting the superiority of Christ from different angles. But right there at the middle uh, of the, the se- uh, this section, we're going to see the main focus is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature that Jesus Christ is divine. He is above all. So, Let's look at the first half of this sentence. And I say sentence because, once again, in the Greek, it is one sentence. In verses 1 and 2, or 1 through the beginning of 2, we see that the Son is preeminent. This is demonstrating the fact that God's final word is sent through him. It reads, God, after he had spoken long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his son. So God did speak to the fathers, to the prophets. But now, in these days, 
It has culminated in his revelation to mankind through his son. If I could take a moment to just drive home the importance of that fact. When God wanted us, mankind, to know more fully what he is like, he didn't write a new letter, record it on a video. No, he became a man and dwelt among us. The scriptures say, he who has seen the Son has seen the Father. He who has heard the Son has heard the Father. As Stephen read for us in our opening uh, uh, verses from Colossians 1, Christ is the image of the invisible God. All things were created by him. He is before all things. By him all things consist or hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Why? So that in all things he might have the preeminence for it pleased the father that in him the son should all fullness dwell you see christ is preeminent because he was the final and most perfect and complete revelation of god the father secondly we see this argument building we see that the son is exalted as the universal heir of all creation in the second part of verse two it says whom he appointed heir of all things so in these last days God has spoken to us in His Son, His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things. God appointed Him to receive the inheritance of all things. He is exalted. Thirdly, we see that the Son was the agent in the creation of the world. It says, The Son, God has spoken through His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. Why is the Son of God exalted? He's the final revelation of God himself. He is the heir of all creation. He is the one who created the world. We know this also from John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made by the Word. Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the second person of the Godhead, he was involved as the creative agent of the world. Truly, he is exalted. But the author is not through, for in the middle of this sentence, we see the main point of the sentence. We find two very emphatic statements concerning the nature and person of the Son of God. We see here the divine nature of the Son. Look with me at verse 3. And he, still speaking of the Son, is the radiance of his, or the Father's, glory, and the exact representation of his nature. Now, he has said that he's the creative agent, he's the heir of all things, he's the final revelation of God, but here he goes further and says that Jesus Christ is the radiance of the Father's glory, the exact representation of the Father's nature. Why is the Son of God exalted? Well, he's the final revelation of the Father. He's the heir of all creation. He's the one who created the world, but he is God incarnate in the flesh. Now, the very first aspect of the Son's divine nature is seen in this communication about his radiance this term talking about the radiance of his glory is his manifested or revealed seen and shown excellent thus the sun is the outshining of god's excellence or some persons uh, paraphrase it this way he is the one who shows us how excellent and magnificent god is do you want to see how great excellent and magnificent god is look at the sun that is what is being said here the sun's radiance of god's glory is nothing less than the essential glory of God himself. Now, 
some of those who are familiar with the Old Testament, I think would at least, when they're hearing about the glory, the radiance of his glory, maybe have pictures of what was seen in the Old Testament of the glory of God. Think about what we refer to as the Shekinah glory of God, as signified, it represented the very presence of God in the midst of his people. It was the radiant glory of God's presence which settled as a beautiful cloud on Mount Sinai when Moses went up to meet him. The same glory was set at the door of the tabernacle when the Lord used to speak with Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. It was the glory manifested at Christ's transfiguration again and accomplished by the magnificent cloud of the Shekinah glory of God. Even the transfiguration itself demonstrated that this type of glory belonged to the sun. It wasn't simply like the moon reflects, you know, the moon in outer space reflects the sun, uh, our glowing star out there's uh, light. It doesn't give light itself. No, no, no. Christ's transfiguration wasn't just simply bouncing off the Father's light so the disciples could see it. No, the sun possessed this glory. The brilliant light brighter than the midday sun seen by Paul at his encounter with the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, this was the same radiant glory of the divine presence. Maybe some of these things were what was in the mind uh, of the audience when they heard the author state at the beginning that the sun is the radiance of the Father's glory. But to drive home his point more, he says, he is the exact representation of the Father's nature. This second aspect tells us about that the sun is the very image and substance of God. The Greek word translated exact representation was used when an engraver, uh, he, he would make a character like a letter, um, you know, like for a ring or some kind of other mold or, or die or some kind of seal. The word is very strong. Actually, I read, I don't know the Greek language so well that I could make the statement on my own, but it says that the word underscores more emphatically the divinity of Christ than any other Greek word used elsewhere to denote Christ's image of God. So it's saying exact representation. This is, Jesus is the mold of God. The principal idea intended here is that of exact correspondence. Not just similarity, but exact correspondence. The Son is therefore the exact representation of God's nature. The same Greek term is used in Hebrews 11.1. Hebrews 11.1, now faith is the substance of things hoped for. Faith is the substance. It's not like it. It is the substance of things hoped for. So substance, that word used for substance, is the same word used here, exact representation. So essentially, if we were to use the word substance, the Son has the very being, the very essence, or substance of God. So he is God. Whoever possesses the very nature of God is divine. Think about God. What word describes him more than any other Bible? He's holy. He's separate, distinct. Nothing is like him. He is completely different. You can't say you possess the exact representation or exact nature as God. You're distinct from God. The Son is distinct from God, and yet he is the same as God. There are three. There he is one. He is different. He is one with God. He is the exact representation. While the Son, again, is distinct from the Father, he is the light and the truth. He is the revealer of God to mankind. Jesus as the Son, in this epistle here, this letter, he is held up as the all-excellent Son by virtue of his divine nature and works. 
all things pale in comparison to the Son. Jesus is found alone. Jesus is found alone because of his greater glory in that he is the final revelation of God. He is found to be above all. We're not to seek signs concerning the will of God. I, I catch myself doing this often, trying to flow out, throw out fleeces like Gideon, and sometimes God's merciful enough to uh, help me out sometimes. But we're, we're not supposed to be looking for signs or new revelation. God has given us his complete revelation. If you've been receiving new revelation for God, I encourage you to talk to Pastor Mark afterwards. He will set you straight. But I hear people say, I got a word from God. The, the problem is we have the revealed and sealed last revelation of God in his son, Jesus Christ. There's nothing that can be added to it to improve upon it. So Jesus Christ, the argument made here in this opening sentence, he is the final revelation of the Father. He is the heir of all things. He is the creator of the world. He is the radiance of God's glory. He's the exact representation of God's nature. But we're not done. He upholds all things by the power of his word. The Son sustains the creation through His Word. Now, what we're going to see here, like I said, Christ as supreme is the pinnacle, and there's the beginning of the sentence and the end of the sentence, these arguments that are holding up that central idea. We're going to see kind of uh, some parallelism in the second half of the sentence. So, we've already said that the Son sustains all things by the power of His Word or the Word of His power. Compare that to the end of verse 2, which describes Christ as the agent or the creator. See, we see two parallel aspects of his creative ability. He created the world. He sustains the world. The Word incarnate created the world. The Word incarnate sustains the world. Now look at the next argument. The Son is exalted after his purification for sins. Verse 3, uh, midway through, it says, When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now compare this to the middle of verse 2, where Christ is referred to as the heir of all things. Here, once again, are two parallel but different aspects of Christ's majestic exaltation. He's exalted as heir. God appointed him as heir. And he is the exalted, resurrected King of glory. After he made purification of sins, he died, he was buried, he was raised again, exalted. We see him exalted as heir, exalted before, you know, uh, before the cross before and after the cross. So we see these parallel ideas. The argument is still being made for Christ's superiority. And then finally, we see his preeminence, which means his superiority that he receives first place. We see the Son's preeminence demonstrated in his name being exalted over the angels. Look at verse 4. Having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. So compare this to the beginning of the sentence, found in verses 1 and 2. The completion of God's prophetic revelation, as spoken to the fathers through the prophets, and the superiority of Christ's name, above the rank and title of the angels. These are actually parallel concepts. I didn't catch this at first, but I was studying, and one person pointed it out and said that the angels and the prophets both functioned as divine messengers. The prophets were given word to take to the fathers of the Israelites, and the angels were sent as messengers. Even into the book of Revelation, we can see them still functioning that way, and certainly in the Old Testament, um, they're, they're messengers, or some of the angels are messengers, but we definitely see them as representation of messengers carrying the word of God. The Son 
is exalted above the prophets. He is the final revelation. The Son is exalted above the angels, the other messengers and servants of God. So we see his exaltation, kind of that parallelism, that contrast. So once again, Christ's divine nature being the most important theme here. His initial creation, his sustaining creation being kind of the next layer down. His rule prior to the cross, his rule following the cross, his exaltation being the next argument. And then lastly, he's exalted over the prophets and over the angels. So I, I hope I've made it clear that the main point here, as we see in Hebrews 1 through 4, it starts initially with the thought God has spoken, but it, it's something is driving something much more important, that Christ is above all. Um, and these arguments are surrounding that central theme that he is divine. He is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his nature. Now, other people have pointed out, and won't take time to kind of exposit the uh, text this way, but the fact that Christ is the ultimate master, he's the prophet. He is the priest who has made purification of sins. He is the exalted king of kings. So we can see all the aspects of Christ, uh, his roles in his, uh, the fulfillment of being the prophet, the priest, and the king, the, the perfect one to come. You know, we can see those alluded to here, even this uh, first four verses. And, and you might wonder, why, why did he go to the angels at the end of verse four? It seemed like an odd way to end the sentence and the argumentation, but it's actually natural, and, and no doubt it was intentional, because the first major section of the book Hebrews, chapters one and two, is about Christ's superiority of the angels. So he's kind of transitioning toward that first argument. And um, one author tried to summarize uh, what we find here in Hebrews 1, 1 through 4 this way. Um, and I thought it was kind of funny. He's trying to summarize a Greek sentence with his own sentence. But he put it this way. He said, The highest of all revelations is given us now in the Son of God, who is greater than the angels and who, having completed redemption, sits enthroned at God's right hand. So now that we've examined the basic structure and the theme of this opening sentence, I'd like to kind of go back for a short time now and dwell on some of the glorious topics presented in the verses of this opening sentence, the letter of the Hebrews. Now, we won't be able to unpack it all. Uh, This one sentence alludes to or covers doctrinal themes such as God's self-revelation, God's inspiration, the dispensations of time in which God, you know, worked differently through time and when he was speaking to the prophets and through his son. It, it also talks about the pre-incarnate Christ. It talks about him involved in creation, creation itself, and his sustaining power. It talks about the attributes of God, the Trinity, and how the Son and the Father are one. It talks about the hypostatic union of Christ's human and divine natures because it talks about his exaltation. You know, he had humbled himself, made himself lower the angels, then he was exalted. I mean, there was so much packed into verses 1 through 4. It's like this like mini-theology lesson in a sentence. And, uh, of course, there's the atonement alluded to, the angels alluded to, so we won't be able to unpack it all, but I would like to spend some time just looking at the power of the fact that God has spoken to us in his Son. Looking back at verse 1, it says, God, after he had spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways. The fact that God would speak to us at all is absolutely staggering. The fact that God spoke to man and has preserved his word for generations so you and I can follow in their footsteps learning the word of God, that is grace upon grace. 
You see, God chose many methods and expressed his wisdom and compassion by meeting man in many ways. But none of these was more glorious than in his revelation through the word of God incarnate. I was reading not too long ago in Isaiah 52. Uh, It's a section of Isaiah where he's giving encouragement to the remnant. And God says, I am he that doth speak. It is I. Or in the New American Standard, it says, I am the one who is speaking. Here I am. He, He speaks to his people. I'm the one who speaks. I'm the one who says it. I am he. When God spoke to the fathers and the prophets, or through the prophets, God spoke to the fathers. The fathers heard and understood the prophets, and they were therefore hearing God speak. God uses chosen, inspired human instruments to speak to the fathers. But it is God speaking to the fathers when the prophets speak and write. Don't miss the significance there. God spoke to the fathers and the prophets. Sometimes when we sing the song too, I, I think about the prophets. Isn't that so great that God used prophets? But he was speaking to the people. He was speaking to the common people. He didn't just say, oh, I'm going to give messages to the prophets and let them go hang out in their prophet chambers and dwell on these glorious truths. No, he was speaking to the fathers. Now, many of these Hebrews were thinking, these are my ancestors. And spiritually, they are certainly ours if, uh, I guess we all go back to Adam and Eve. So, but they spoke to our fathers. They didn't deserve it. We don't deserve it. But he spoke to them through the prophets. Have you ever said in a moment of... Uh, maybe depression or desperation. Oh, God, speak to me. If you would only speak to me, everything would be okay. If I could only hear your voice, if you would only talk to me and not be silent. I kind of see that language sometimes from David in the Psalms. Oh, God, you know, where are you? And we get that way at times. And when I complain about the silence of God on a particular matter in my life or in general, I'm like a person complaining in the sunshine state of Florida because there's no sunshine because I'm sitting in a dark room. It's there. I just need to step outside. God has spoken, and he is speaking, but I need to grab the word. It's like someone, again, in the Sunshine State, uh, where we have these orange trees saying, there's no orange trees in Florida because I don't see one in my backyard. We need to go to the word. God has spoken. He's not silent at all. He is continuing to speak in his word. God has spoken and said everything that I need to hear for life and godliness. I don't need new revelation. I don't need signs. I have his word. I love uh, John Piper's response to the question. Somebody asked him, have you ever heard God speak audibly to you? And he said, yes, yes. In fact, this morning I heard him. And they're like, oh, what did he say? And he began quoting one of the Psalms uh, that he read aloud uh, in his devotions. And I know he's being a little coy there or silly. But the, the, the fact is... God is not just an idea to be thought about. His word are not just stories to be read, but he is a person to be listened to, understood, enjoyed, and obeyed. And God has spoken. He didn't have to speak to man. Man did not earn this privilege. God chose to speak to man in his divine wisdom and mercy. And God has spoken to the fathers by the prophets. And in his matchless grace, God has spoken to man in the flesh through the word incarnate Jesus Christ. And finally, as we sang tonight, God is speaking to our hearts again. And so we don't get sidetracked and think this is new private revelation. God has spoken to our hearts again in the age-long word declaring God's own message now as then. Do I understand everything that was written the way the original audience would have? I wish I did. 
but God's own message is still being spoken today. God's voice is still being heard in churches across this world today as his word is taught and read. His voice is speaking to you every time you read his written word. I mean, this has slayed me this past uh, couple weeks, actually. The song was stuck in my head, and then, of course, it was drawing me back to Hebrews 1. The fact that God has spoken, and his word's not off there on some mountaintop in the Middle East. It's in my house. It's in front of my children's faces. It resonates in my mind for the little bit God has given me gracious enough to memorize. I have the very word of God. God has spoken in his word, and it is the most powerful force in the universe. I mean, when we think about the fact that he's spoken, he spoke the world into existence. I love how one man put it. He said, God spoke an inanimate, non-existent material obeyed. Things that didn't exist and had no life came into existence, obeyed at the power of his word. What is that? And yet I have it. I have the same creative powerful word of God to read every day. I know I don't have maybe everything God has ever said, but he, I have what he gave me, and it is his word. God sustains the very fibers of this universe and your being by the power of his word. Look what our text says. He upholds all things by the word of his power. So the same word that created us, created this universe in which we are a dust speck of dust specks, holds every electron and atom together. He sustains the world. By him, the world consists, as we read in Colossians 1. Do you ever think about this? Everything in this room right now is pre-dust, except for two things. These chairs, pre-dust. If you give enough time, they're going to be dust. Your carcass, your flesh suit, your earth suit, it's going to be dust given enough time. I mean, the lights, uh, I mean, the air, all the electronics, nothing we have, the money in our pockets, our credit cards, the cars out in the parking lot, just pre-dust. But there are two things in this room that will remain in their current state forever. Well, I guess I should take that statement back, but there's two things that will last forever. The souls of men, and I speak generally of mankind. And what's the other one, Lithia? In God's Word. We ask that question all the time at home. What are the two things in this room that will last forever? The souls of men and the Word of God. The souls of men and the Word of God. It's the only thing that will last forever. Everything else that I interact with is just pre-dust. Now, it matters. It matters how I use my money. It matters how we use the resources God has given us. It it matters how, uh, you know... How I use uh, all, all the paperwork at my desk at work. It matters. Yet the one thing or the two things that will last forever are the word of God and the souls of men. Every day you exist because of and are sustained by the word of God. Every day you're surrounded by eternal souls and the word of God. I mean, think about that. When I'm driving to work, I have these weird thoughts. I'm thinking about every atom I'm driving over on the road, every atom between me and the car in front of me held together by the power of his word. I mean, His word is what is surrounding me day in and day out. His word is what makes up my thought and very being and existence. I have nothing apart from his word. I am nothing. There is nothing apart from his creative, powerful word. Everything else is dust. 
Everything else is dust. Now, he has a purpose for it. But the power that sustains the universe is the power of God's word. And then here's the kicker. I've already quoted part of it. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that's come into being. And the word became flesh and dwelt or lived among us. And we saw his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The most powerful force in the universe is the word of God. The most powerful force in the universe is the sovereign king of kings, the Lord Jesus Christ, the word of God incarnate, the creator and sustainer of the universe. I used to work at Citibank, and I used to put up little scripture verses on my cubicle wall, and uh, people were like, oh, you can't put up that religious stuff. And I'm like, eh, it's just words on paper can't hurt you. And while I was just trying to argue to get my way and leave them up, my argument couldn't have been more wrong. It is the most powerful thing in all the universe, not that actual paper and those printed ink words, but the Word of God is the most powerful force in the universe. It is the representation of all who God is. I mean, when we speak, our words don't always perfectly represent us, but God's word always perfectly represents him and never fails to accomplish what he sent it to do. Therefore, his word is powerful. His word, his son is the embodiment of his word. I don't just sit down at night and read Bible stories aloud to my children. Each night, God is speaking in my house. And may my family be careful to listen. May your family be careful to listen. He tells us what he has done. He tells us what he is like. He tells us what he desires. He tells us about his divine plan for those who believe. He tells us everything we need for life and godliness. And may we take heed and listen to the word of God. I'm not trying to advocate anything mystical or suggest if you read God's word aloud in your house, the foundations of your house are going to shake, but it has the power to pull them apart at their very fibers. It has the power to create anything. It, It is God's word. But I simply want to remind us and myself, brothers and sisters, of what we possess uh, I was blindsided by this morning as we were singing our closing song, uh, Oh Great God, the, the verse, second verse reads, I was blinded by my sin, had no ears to hear your voice, did not know your love within, and had no taste for heaven's joys. I mean, didn't even like it. But then your spirit gave me life, opened up your word to me through the gospel or word and actions and deeds of your son and gave me endless hope in life. Why do you have endless hope in life? It's because of the word of God. It is alive and powerful. And as Mark was speaking to us this morning about the word of God abiding in us and us in the word, I was overwhelmed by the thought that the word of God, the eternal, all-powerful, never-failing, unchanging word of God, the word incarnate is telling us to abide in him and his words to abide in us. I mean, we, we got it. We have the, the dynamos, the power of the gospel every day. And it is... We have the Son. We have the Word. Uh, Mark was also telling us that God cleanses us through His Word. And, you know, I'm sitting there, Mark, and I was just like, wow, I I didn't even see this when I was studying the text. Look back at verse 3. He is the radiance of His glory, the exact representation of His nature, and upholds all things by the power of His Word. And when He had made purification of sins. Who made purification of sins? The incarnate Word, the Son of God. The word made purifications of sins. And there we read back in John 15 that 
He will purify us and cleanse us by the word if we abide in the word. God, the Son, the incarnate word went to the cross for those who rebel against the word of God. He planned for our existence through his word. Our future is secure because of his word, his word which never returns void but always accomplishes what it desires. The word purifies God's people and God exalted his son, the incarnate word. As uh, John 6 says, and I think Mark quoted this again this morning, it was just ringing in my ears, is that his words are life and truth. The flesh profits nothing, but his words are life and truth. I mean, they say, to me, to live is Christ. To me, to live is Christ's words. So the question for you and for myself is, do I treat the written word as exalted? And I don't want to get to where the the Muslims are, that the actual book. I understand this is a record, a reproduction of God's word. And yes, treat all books with respect. I try to remind my children of that. But do I treat the words of God that are contained in here as exalted? Now, I recognize there's a difference between the person of the Son of God and his verbal words. But the scripture seems to paint a picture that his verbal words are the essence of his nature. So how do I interact with the word? Do I sit down and consider that God is still speaking through this word now as he was then? Or do I just consider it history lesson? Do I just try to dissect it? If Jesus were physically present in my home, would I sit at his feet as Mary? Would I be over there playing with my phone? All right, I'll get you. I'm a little tired. Maybe catch you in the morning. I mean, think about it. I'm not just here to badger anyone about their Bible reading. I mean, I need as much encouragement in that area as anyone. But if Jesus was sitting in my home, the word of God was being spoken in my home, I think everything would stop. We'd all fall on our faces. And yet I possess the word of God, the very word of God every day. Does it hold proper praise of importance in my life? I've probably said it, so I'm not scolding anyone, but there are phrases like this. I know the Bible says, but it should never come from the lips of a believer. I know the Bible says, but. No, there is no but. As the old uh, T-shirt or hats I used to see guys wear, God has spoken. That settles it. It really does. God has spoken. And that settles everything. Nothing is different. Nothing can be changed. Nothing can be improved upon. He has settled everything with his word. I understand we have to study it, and there's areas we don't always understand. There's what we call gray areas and many things uh, that we wrestle with. I talked to my wife about one over lunch, but the fact is God has spoken. Everything is settled. And when I consider that this is the word of God, do I consider verses like Deuteronomy 12, 32? Whatever I have commanded you, You shall be careful to do it. You shall not add to it nor take away from it. Do I take his word that seriously? When we obey scripture, we're obeying God himself because scripture is God speaking. When we disobey the scripture, we are disobeying God himself. Pastor Mark asked this question this morning and it cut me to the heart. He said, if Jesus was knocking on your door, would you invite him in? Would you want him to come in? Because you know when he's coming in, he's examining your heart. Closets are all turned out. He's there. He's... You're you're on your face before him. Do you want him to examine your heart? Do you want to hear his word in your ears? Do you want it to burn within your heart? Are you excited to spend time with Christ? Does his word stir you? Does his word burn within you and you desire to communicate it to others? Is his word of greater value to you than anything else? 
is his word of greater value. What else could we compare? If we had the word of God in one scale, and again, not just the book, but the word of God, could there be anything that we could say is more valuable? I mean, essentially, we, we see this is the son. This is the divine, the one who God has exalted. This is the word. Is hearing it read and taught one of the best parts of your life? It is one of the best parts of your life when he convicts you of sin, when he shows you his beauty and you rejoice, when you see his majesty on display, when the questions of your heart are answered, when you have peace because you've spent time in his word. Is his word the, the conduit for your greatest joy in life? Or are you getting that from something else? Is searching out its treasures a joy to you? And then this question, I think, I heard it in a different context, but what would you give up to keep it? If somebody came to your house and said, listen, we're going to take your Bibles. You'll have no Internet access to the Bibles. Basically, you know, it's a hypothetical scenario. But if you had no access to the Word of God, that which communicates to us perfectly about God and His Son, but you've got to give me 200 bucks, and then you can keep it for the rest of your life. Would you part with the $200? Now, I know it's hypothetical, so it's hard to... Would you, you'd, okay, you'd probably part with the 200 bucks. They said, we've got to take your TV uh, and your phones. You'll have no electronics, uh, you know, media kind of things for the rest of your life. Would you give that up to keep the Word of God? What if they said your car, your job, your house? What about your arm, your leg? What about your life? Would you risk your life and your own family's life to keep it? I think of our brothers and sisters in other countries that do. They risk their lives to keep it. And here I am, word of God speaking, and how do I treat it? What importance do I give it? How much does it weigh upon me that I'm surrounded by it? It is the very fabric of my existence. What would I give up to keep the word of God? I'm not trying to guilt trip anybody into reading the Bible, but, man, if you feel guilty and you want to spend more time in it, good. Uh, I do. I do. I'd like to make some concluding remarks that are not my own tonight. Uh, They're from the author, the unknown author of the book of Hebrews. I thought it was a fitting way to kind of wrap up tonight. I want to share some of his conclusions from the latter chapters of the book of Hebrews. What do we do in the face of the fact that God has spoken through his son? That we know that Christ is superior and above all things, and we have his word. He is present in our homes. He is everywhere. Yes, he's omnipresent. He's present in our homes. His word is present in our lives. What do we do? I'm going to be reading through different verses through Hebrews 10 through 13. Um, You can find them if you want to study some more in the book of Hebrews later. The author writes, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for for us through the veil, that is, his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, so since we have the supreme, exalted Christ, and we have his word, how should this affect us? This is in Hebrews 10, verse 22. Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope, without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as the habit of some is, but encouraging one another, 
and all the more as you see the day drawing near. That's some good application I, we can all take to heart. And then in Hebrews 12, verse 1, Therefore, and I know he's referencing Hebrews 11, all the, what we call the Hall of Faith, all those Old Testament uh, prophets that went before us. He, the author writes, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, all those fathers who have went before us, all those prophets who have went before us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. I said to a brother the other day, sin doesn't even make sense when you got your eyes on the, the exalted king of glory. When you've seen his face in scripture and he's speaking from his word and it's ringing in your ears, sin just sounds like the most absurd thing in the world. But what do we do when we're in a bad temper or the kids are doing wrong or we're just by ourselves? I mean, sin almost seems like inescapable. What is that? It's the human condition, but let us lay it aside. Let's make war against sin. As Mark said today, it's not just let go and let God. Let us abide in Christ in his word and run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down on the right hand of the throne of God, as was referenced in the first verse, or the first sentence. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You want to persevere? You want to keep going? Consider him. Consider your exalted King of Kings, the incarnate word. Therefore, in this verse 12, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. Pursue peace with all men and sanctification with that which no one will see the Lord. God isn't just concerned about our vertical relationship, but man, there's all kinds of application horizontally. He, he cares about how we interact with the brothers. And then lastly, from Hebrews 13, make sure that your character is free from the love of money being content with what you have, for he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. And if I had to you know, keep just a few select words out of God's word, those are some I'd want to keep and treasure. I'm glad I don't have to part with them. But those are some precious words. I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. And then the author of Hebrews wraps up this way, and we'll close with this tonight. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 12 through 21. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, for we are seeking the city which is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. And do not neglect doing good and sharing. For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. And then verse 20, the closing doxology. Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, equip you in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight, 
through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Your Word is powerful, it is sharp, it is living, it is life, and it is truth. As Peter said, we don't want to go anywhere else, for You have the words of life. You have bound us together as brothers and sisters, and we have not just camaraderie, Lord God, we have unity because we are gathered around Your Word. Let us remember the importance, the supremacy of Your Son, the importance of Your Word. Lord God, there's so much to unpack. The more we learn, it seems like we have so much more to learn. And I know, Lord God, we'll be chasing down your glory for all eternity. But let us remember that you have spoken and you're still speaking through your word. Let us treasure your voice in these written pages. Let us hold it in chief importance above all things, as your Son is exalted above all things. I ask you that you'd be with every brother and sister here this week. Let your word, as it does, hold them together. But let them not neglect your word. Let me not neglect your word. I ask you that the young children in here, Lord God, that your word would pierce their young hearts and give them faith to believe your word and repentance to turn from sins. I ask that you would sanctify us and cleanse us through your word. I ask that you would help us to abide in your word. We are in desperate need of you. You are our King, our Lord and Savior. You are our Creator. Thank you so much for what we have seen in your word, your face, your beauty, perfection. Let us not be forgetful hearers. I ask you, Lord God, that you would speak to us this week through your word and help us to be diligent, to obey. And we will thank you and praise you for all that you're going to do. It's in Jesus Christ's precious name that we pray. Amen.